Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter, and this is Fundamentally Mormon. Today we're going to be reading Chapter 5 of Pre-Existence, pages 57 through 65. The reader portion of the program is about 18 minutes long, and then we'll get into the reading and commentary portion of the program. The guest call-in number is 917 989-8827 and you can join the chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally mormon the title of the chapter is genesis and the two creations thank you for listening genesis and the two creations chapter five of pre-existence Pages 57 to 65 in the first chapter of Genesis we read of the creation of man and all things. Then in the second chapter it says there was not a man to till the earth. Most theologians explain this apparent inconsistency as a mistake in the writing or translating of the scriptures. But, it is no mistake. The quotations compiled in this chapter will show that one chapter was referring to a spiritual creation and the other, a mortal creation. Person Pratt, Journal of Discourses, and have you not read too in the same chapter that God created man in his own image? Male and female created he them? When? It is said to have been on the sixth period, or, according to King James' translation, on the sixth day. Do you mean to say, we were all in existence on the sixth day? Yes. But on the seventh day, we are told in the following chapter, there was not a man to till the ground. Is it not very singular that all should have an existence on the sixth day, and on the following day there was not a man in existence to till the ground? Why not? Because man was not yet placed in this temporal creation, but he had an existence then in heaven, where we were begotten. You and I were present when this world was created and made M-you and I then understood the nature of its creation, and I have no doubt that we rejoiced and sang about it. Indeed, the Lord put a very curious question to the patriarch Job, I propose this. He said to him, Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where wast thou, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Supposing Job to be living now, and this same question put to him, and supposing too, that, instead of answering it himself, he were to seek to the learned Christian world for enlightenment on the subject, What do you think would be the nature of the answer he would receive? It would be, in effect, why, Job, when the Lord laid the foundation of the earth, you had no existence, for you were not born. Why did not Job so answer the Lord? It was because he understood something about man's previous estate. He was wise in making no reply to the Lord, for doubtless he felt himself unable to do so. 
person Prat. In these two creations that took place in the beginning, represented as the beginning of this creation and dash not absolutely the beginning of all the creations of God. For his works are without beginning, and without end. They never cease, nor does his word cease. He speaks to us, so far as this creation is concerned, according to our natural ideas and understanding. He says, all things I have created by the word of my power, which is the power of my spirit and dash I created them firstly spiritual and secondly temporal, which is the beginning of my work, and again firstly temporal, and secondly spiritual, which is the last of my work, speaking unto you that you may naturally understand. But unto myself my works have no end, neither beginning. We learn, therefore, when speaking of this spiritual creation, that not only all the children of men, of all generations, and of all ages, were created spiritually in heaven, for that fish and fowls, and beast, and all animated things having life, were first made spiritual in heaven, on the fifth and sixth days, before bodies of flesh were prepared for them on the earth, and that there was no flesh upon the earth until the morning of the seventh day. On that morning God made the first fleshly tabernacle and took man's spirit and put within it, and man became a living soul and dashed the first flesh upon the earth and dashed the first man also. Though it was the seventh day, no flesh but this one tabernacle was yet formed. No fish, fowl and beast was as yet permitted to have a body of flesh. The second chapter of Genesis, New Translation, informs us that the spirits of fowls were created in heaven, the spirits of fish and cattle, and all things that dwell upon the earth, had their pre-existence. They were created in heaven, the spiritual part of them, not their flesh and bones. We are also told in this inspired translation that these living trees which we behold in dash for God has given life unto all things in dash had their spiritual existence in heaven before their temporal existence. Every herb and every tree, before it was planted on the earth, that is, the spiritual part of it, the life of it, that which, in other words, animates, that which gives power to the vegetable to bring forth fruit after its likeness and dash the spiritual part existed in heaven. It was a spiritual creation first. We are also told that the earth was organized in a spiritual form, that is, the portion that gives life to the earth. We read about the earth's dying, and that it shall be quickened again. What is it that will make the earth die? It will be the withdrawing of the spiritual portion from it, that which gives it life and dash that which animates it, and causes it to bring forth fruit. That which quickens the earth is the Spirit of God. That spiritual creation existed before the temporal was formed. This was the beginning of the first part of his work, pertaining to this creation. On the seventh day he began the temporal portion. There was not yet a man to till the ground, and the gods formed a man from the dust of the ground, and took his spirit and dash that is, the man's spirit and dash and put it into him and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This we read in the second chapter of Genesis, and you will find it recorded on the sixth and thirty-fifth pages of the new edition of the Pearl of Great Price. Abraham also obtained a knowledge of the spiritual creation, as well as the temporal. In giving a history of the creation, he speaks of the formation of man out of the ground, how he took man's spirit that was created in heaven and put it within the body of man, and man became a living soul and dashed the first flesh upon the earth as recorded in the second of Genesis. Now, we have been in the habit of thinking that the various kinds of animals that had lived, 
according to geologists, were the first flesh on the earth, and we go away back millions of ages, to see that these lower formations of life existed before man. But the Lord gives us different information from this. He shows us that among all the animated creatures of flesh, man was the first that was ever placed upon the earth in this temporal condition, contradicting the theories of geologists and dash that is, so far as placing man on the earth in this present probation is concerned. What may have taken place millions of ages before the world was organized imporally for man to inhabit is not revealed. But, so far as this present change is concerned, that took place about 6,000 years ago, man was the first being that came upon the earth and inhabited a body of flesh bones. Afterwards, on the seventh day, out of the ground the Lord God created the beasts of the field. Go back to the first chapter of Genesis, and you will find that the beasts, etc., were formed on the sixth day or period, and that on the seventh there was no flesh on the earth, and having created man as the first flesh upon the earth, God then created, out of the ground, the beasts of the field. Here is the second part of the beginning of his work. Firstly, spiritual and dash the beast created in heaven. Then, secondly temporal and dash their bodies formed out of the ground, their spirits being put within these bodies, and the beasts became living souls. As it was with the birds of the air, so with the fish of the sea, and so with all animated creatures pertaining to this world. This is the history of the generations of the heavens and the earth, on the day that the Lord God created them. And the Lord has seen proper to reveal this great information in the first of Genesis, and in the book of Abraham. Person Pride, Journal of Discourses, now a question arises, if this spirit can exist separate and independent of the tabernacle, when the tabernacle dies, is it unreasonable to suppose that it could exist before the tabernacle was formed? This is an important question, and in my estimation there is nothing absurd or unreasonable in the least degree in believing that that personage that we call the intelligent spirit, which can exist between death and the resurrection, separate and distinct from the body, could also have had an existence before the body was formed, that is, a pre-existence. This is a scriptural doctrine, for there are many passages in scripture which, in my estimation, prove that man had a pre-existence. If we turn to the first and second chapters of Genesis, we shall find it clearly indicated that man had an existence before he was placed in the Garden of Eden. In the first chapter of Genesis we are told that God made the earth, and the seas, and the grass, and the herbs and the trees in about six days of time. We also read that on the fifth day of the creation he made the fish and fowls, that on the sixth day he made the animals, and last of all that he made man, male and female created he them. This seems to have been the last work of creation on the sixth day. Read on still further, in the second chapter of Genesis, and we are informed that on the seventh day there was not yet a man to till the ground. Now how are we going to reconcile it with that which is stated in the preceding chapter and dash on the fifth day be made the fowls and the fish, and on the sixth day he made the animals before he made man, and on the seventh day there was not yet a man to till the ground. And then we are informed about man's being placed in the garden on the seventh day, and also that on that day the beasts were formed and brought to the man to see what he would call them. This seems to have been another department of work that the Lord accomplished on the morning of the seventh day. He planted a garden on the seventh day in Eden, he placed the man in that garden on the seventh day, 
and then we are informed that he brought the beasts of the field and the various animals that he had made before the man, and man gave names to them on the Sabbath day. But on the sixth day they were made male and female. I reconcile this by giving a pre-existence to man, such is my faith. I believe that man had an existence before the Lord commenced the great temporal work of creation, so far as this planet is concerned. How long he had existed prior to the formation of this planet I do not know, but it is certain God seems to have formed the spiritual part of it in the six days, and when it comes to the temporal part that seems to have been the work of the seventh day. On the seventh day the Bible says that God ended his work. He did not altogether end it on the sixth, but he ended it on the seventh day. Joseph Fielding Smith Every creature had a spiritual existence. The spirits of men, beasts, and all animal life existed before the foundations of the earth were laid and are living entities. As death, through the fall, has passed upon all, so the resurrection, through the mission of Jesus Christ, comes to all. I want to give you a little explanation of man's relationship to the animals upon the earth as the Lord has given it to us by revelation and dash not as it is taught by man in the world and dash but the true relationship which exists between man and beast. The idea prevails in general, I believe, in the religious world where the gospel truth is misunderstood, that man is the only being on the earth that has what is called a soul or a spirit. We know this is not the case, for the Lord has said that not only has man a spirit and is thereby a living soul, but likewise the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea have spirits, and hence are living souls. But this does not make them kinsmen to the sons and daughters of God. They are our father's creations, not his offspring, and that is the great difference between man and beast. It would be a very strange world where animals were not found. If, after the resurrection of the dead, we discovered that man was the only living creature with immortality, we would certainly consider it a very strange world. Yet the idea does prevail that man has a spirit and the animals have not. Some people think this is the great thing that distinguishes man from all other beings. The fish, the fowl, the beasts of the field, lived before they were placed naturally in this earth, and so did the plants that are upon the face of the earth. The spirits that possess the bodies of the animals are in the similitude of their bodies. In other words, the bodies of animals conform to the spirits which possess them, and which existed before they were placed on the earth. That which is spiritual being in the likeness of that which is temporal, and that which is temporal in the likeness of that which is spiritual. The spirit of man in the likeness of his person, as also the spirit of the beast, and every other creature which God has created. Brigham Young Journal of Discourses, I will give you a part of my own visions upon this matter. Mankind is composed of two distinct elements. The first is a spiritual organization in eternity, the second is a natural organization on this earth, formed out of the material of which this earth is composed. Man is first spiritual, then temporal. As it is written in the revelations of God to man, all things were first created spiritual, and secondly temporal. That is, spirits were begotten, born and educated in the celestial world, and were brought forth by celestial bodies. By tracing this subject a little we might understand how this is brought about. The spirits before inhabiting bodies are as pure and holy as the angels or as the gods, they know no evil. This, 
their first estate is the commencement of their experience. Joseph F. Smith, Journal of Discourses, with God all things are spiritual. There is nothing temporal with him at all, and there ought to be no distinction with us in regard to these things. Our earthly or temporal existence is merely a continuance of that which is spiritual. Every step we take in the great journey of life, the great journey of eternity, is a step in advance or in retrogression. We are here in mortality, it is true. But we are ahead of that condition we occupied before we came here and took upon us mortality. We are a step in advance of our former state. What is the body without the spirit? It is lifeless clay. What is it that affects this lifeless clay? It is the spirit, it is the immortal part, the eternal being, that existed before it came here, that exists within us, and that will continue to exist, and that by and by will redeem these tabernacles, and bring them forth out of the graves. This whole mission of ours is spiritual. The work we have to do here, although we call it temporal, pertains alike to our spiritual and our temporal salvation. Chapter 6 Birth of the Spirit Genesis and the Two Creations, Chapter 5 of Pre-Existence, pages 57 through 65. In the first chapter of Genesis, we read of the creation of man and all things. Then in the second chapter, it says that there was not a man to till the earth. Most theologians explain this apparent inconsistency as a mistake in the writing or translating of the scriptures. But it is no mistake. The quotations compiled in this chapter will show that one chapter was referring to a spiritual crea- creation and the, other cha- and the other a mortal creation or a physical creation. And that's Orson Pratt, General of Discourses, Volume 18, page 291. <clears throat> oh, nope, I'm wrong. This quote that I'm going to read is Orson Pratt, Journal of Discourses, Volume 18, page 291. And have you not read, too, in the same chapter that God created man in his own image, male and female created he them, when? It is said to have been on the sixth period, or according to the King James translation, on the sixth day. Do you mean to say we are all in existence on the sixth day? Yes. But on the seventh day, we are told in the following chapter that there was not a man to till the ground. Is it not very singular that all should have an existence on the sixth day and on the following day there was not a man in existence to till the ground? Why not? Because man was not yet placed in this temporal creation, but he had an existence then in the heavens where we were begotten. You and I were present when this world was created and made, 
you and I then understood the nature of its creation, and I have no doubt that we rejoiced and sang about it. Indeed, the Lord put a very curious question to the patriarch Job. I don't know what this word is. Uh, I'm going to attempt to say it. I propose, I propose, I guess, of this. I don't know what that means. Let's see what that means. <clears throat> Define. I propose the preposition with reference to concerning, for instance, she remarked, she remarked I propose of the initiative. It's not going to stop the abuse. Okay, in the Oxford uh, American Writers Thesaurus, I propose proposition, value judgment, I propose of particular works of art. He was asked a question, I propose the recent resignation. I still don't know what that means. With reference to, with regard to, with respect in regarding, concerning, respecting, on the subject of, or in the matter of, touching on, dealing with, connected with, in connection with, about, and it's a Scottish word that comes from Annette. I propose of nothing, suddenly I propose of nothing, he asked, what made you decide your engagement was a mistake? Well, okay, that's an interesting word. That's one of those $4 words that I don't know. Anyway, continuing on with the quote, He said to him, Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? So this is Jehovah speaking to Job after he's throwing his temper tantrum about all the stuff, whatever Job was talking about, but after he's lost all of his family and his home and his herds of of livestock and all of the stuff and he's lost his health and everything else and Job is actually kind of not quite cussing out God but kind of and this is what Jehovah is saying to him where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth where wast thou when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy Page 58, supposing Job to be living now and this same question put to him, and supposing too that instead of answering it himself, he were to seek to the learned Christian world for the enlightenment on the subject, what do you think would be the nature of the answer that he would receive? It would be in effect, why Job, when the Lord laid the foundation of the earth, you had no existence, for you not born... Why did not Job so answer the Lord? Because it was because he understood something about man's previous estate. He was wise in making no reply to the Lord, for doubtless he felt himself unable to do so. All right, the next quote comes from Orson Pratt in his book, Masterful Discourses, pages 67 through 69. In these two creations that took place in the beginning, represented as the beginning of this creation, not not absolutely the beginning of all the creations of God, for his works are without beginning, 
and without end, and they never cease, nor does his word cease. He speaks to us so far as this creation is concerned, according to our natural ideas and understanding. He says, all things I have created by the word of my power, which is the power of my spirit. I created them first spiritually, and then second temporally, which is the beginning of my work. And again, firstly, temporally, and secondly, spiritual, which is the last of my work. Speaking unto you that you may naturally understand, but unto myself with works, my works have no end, neither beginning. We learn, therefore, when speaking of the spiritual creation, that not only all the children of men are of all generations and of all ages were created spiritually in heaven, but that fish and fowls and beasts and all animated things having life were first made spiritual in heaven on the fifth and sixth days before the bodies of flesh were prepared for them on the earth, and that there was no flesh upon the earth until the morning of the seventh day. On that morning, God made the first fleshly tabernacle and took man's spirit and put within it a man, um, and man became a living soul. The first flesh upon the earth, the first man also. Though it was the seventh day, no flesh, but this one tabernacle was yet formed. No fish, fowl, and beast was yet permitted to have a body of flesh. The second chapter of Genesis, the New Translation, informs us that the spirits of fowls were created in heaven. The spirits of fish and the spirits of cattle and all things that dwell upon the earth had their pre-existence. They were created in heaven, the spiritual part of them, not their flesh and bones. We are also told in this inspired translation that these living trees which we behold, for God has given life unto all things, had their spiritual existence in heaven before their temporal existence. Every herb and every tree before it was planted on the earth, that is, the spiritual part of it, the life of it which that which, in other words, animates and that gives power <clears throat> to the vegetables to bring forth fruit after its likeness, the spiritual part existed in heaven. It was a spiritual creation first. We are also told that the earth was organized in a spiritual form. That is, that portion that gives life to the earth. We read about the earth's dying and that it shall be quickened again. What is it that will make the earth die? It will be the withdrawing of the spiritual portion from it. That which gives it life, that which animates it and causes it to bring forth fruit, that which quickens the earth is the Spirit of God. That spiritual creation existed before the temple was formed. This was the beginning or the first part of his work pertaining to this creation. On the seventh day, he began the temple portion. There was not yet a man to till the ground, and the gods, or the Elohim, the exalted ones, formed man from the dust of the ground and took his spirit, that is, the man's spirit, and put it into him, 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This we read in the second chapter of Genesis, and you will find it recorded on the 6th and 35th pages of the new edition of the Pearl of Great Price. Abraham also obtained a knowledge of the spiritual creation as well as the temporal. In giving a history of the creation, he speaks of the formation of man out of the ground, how he took man's spirit that was created in heaven and put it within the body of man, and man became a living soul, the first flesh upon the earth, as recorded in the second of uh, chapter of Genesis. Now we have been in the habit of thinking that the various kinds of animals that have lived, according to the geologists, were the first flesh on the earth, and we go away back millions of ages to see that this lower formation of life existed before man. But the Lord gives us different information from the <clears throat> from this. He shows us that among all of the animated creatures of flesh, man was the first that was ever placed upon the earth in this temporal condition. Contradicting the theories of geologists, that is, so far as placing man on the earth in this present probation is concerned, what may have taken place millions of ages before the world was organized temporally for man to inhabit is not revealed. But so far as this present change is concerned, that took place about 6,000 years ago. Man was not the first being that came upon the earth and inhabited a body of flesh and bones. I'm sorry. Man was the first being that came upon the earth and inhabited a body of flesh and bones. Afterwards, on the seventh day, out of the ground, the Lord God created the beast of the field, the beasts of the field. Go back to the first chapter of Genesis, and you will find that the beasts, etc., were formed on the sixth day or period, and that on the seventh there was no flesh on the earth. And having created man as the first flesh upon the earth, God then created out of the ground the beasts of the field. Here is the second part of the beginning of his work. Firstly, spiritual, the beasts created in heaven. Then secondly, temporal, their bodies formed out of the ground, their spirits being put within these bodies. And the beasts became a living soul, as living became living souls. As it was with the birds of the air, so with the fish of the sea, and so with all animated creatures pertaining to this world. This is the history of the generations of the heavens and the earth. On the day that the Lord God created them, and the Lord has seen proper to reveal this great information in the first chapter of Genesis and also in the book of Abraham, end quote. So we're on page 61. Pratt, oh. Journal of, Sorry. Pratt, Journal of Discourses. Now a question arises. Is it?
usually turn that down. I just wanted to know how far I was into this reading because I haven't gone to bed yet and I'm kind of tired and I want to talk about something else as soon as I'm done with the reading. But it looks like we're about 52% through. So this will probably be a shorter program. Maybe. Because I have something I'm going to say to everybody who has been listening and to all the people who have listened to these programs and heard my testimony. I have something to say to you all. Um, after I'm done with this reading, and we're about 50% through with the reading, but uh, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. Okay, so we're on page 61. Orson Pratt, Journal of Discourses, Volume 15, page 243, quote, Now a question arises, if the spirit can exist separate and independent of the tabernacle or the body, when the tabernacle dies, it is unreasonable to suppose that it could exist before the tabernacle was formed. This is an important question, and in my estimation, there is nothing absurd or unreasonable in the least degree. In believing that the that the personage that came that we call on in believing that that personage that we call in the intelligence spirit which can exist between death and the resurrection separate and distinct from from the bodily could also have had an ex- existence before the body was formed. That is a pre-existence. This is a scriptural doctrine, for there are many passages in scripture which, in my estimation, prove that man had a pre-existence. If we turn to the first and second chapter of Genesis, we shall find it clearly indicated that man had an existence before he was placed upon the earth, in the Garden of Eden. In the first chapter of Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, of Genesis, we are told that God made the earth or created the earth and the seas and the grass and the herbs and the trees in about six days of time or six periods of time. Well, I'm getting really tired, so hopefully I can finish this. Um, we're at 59%. So We also read that on the fifth day of the, of the creation, he made the fish and the fowls, that on the sixth day he made the animals, and last of all, that he made man, male and female, created he them. This seems to have been the last work of creation on what on the sixth day. Read on still further in the second chapter of Genesis. We find that there are we uh, sorry the second chapter of Genesis, and we are informed that on the seventh day there was not yet a man to till the ground. Now, how are we going to reconcile this with the 
that which is stated in the preceding chapter on the fifth day to be made the fowls of and the fish and on the sixth day he made the animals before he made man. On the seventh day there was not yet a man to till the ground. Adam then we are informed about man's being placed in the garden on the seventh day and also that on the day the beasts were formed and brought to man or to Adam to see what he would call them this seems to have been another department of work that the Lord accomplished on the morning of the seventh day he planted a garden on the seventh day in Eden. He placed the man in that garden on the several or the seventh day and then we were uh, and then we are informed that he brought the beasts of the field and the various animals that he had that he had made that he had made before the man and man gave the names to them on the sabbath day but on the sixth day they were made male and female I reconcile this by giving a pre-existence to man, such as my faith. I believe that man had an existence before the Lord commenced the great temple work of creation, so far as this planet is concerned. How long he had existed prior to the formation of this planet, I do not know. Oh, wow. Hold on, i got to find my place. This thing just completely jumped on me. Okay, I found where I'm supposed to be. And I took my nap for the day, so maybe I won't read so slow now. I was very tired trying to get this done, because I have to go into work early today. But all right, let's get this done. Um, We are at 69% throughout the reading. And I'm just going to read the last couple sentences. I reconcile by giving a preexistence to man, such is my faith. I believe that man had an existence before the Lord commenced the great temple work of creation, so far as this planet is concerned. How long he had existed prior to the formation of this planet, I do not know. But it is certain God seems to have formed the spiritual part of it in the six days. And when it comes to the temporal part, it seems to have been done. um, That seems to have been the work of the seventh day. On the seventh day, the Bible says that God ended his work. He did not altogether end it on the 6th, but he ended it on the 7th day. Joseph Fielding Smith, quote, and this is from Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 1, pages 62, 63, and 64. 
Every creature had a spiritual existence. The spirits of men, beasts, and all animal life existed before the foundation of the earth were laid, and are, are living entities, as death through the fall has passed upon all this, uh, so the resurrection through the mission of Jesus Christ comes to all. I want to give you a little explanation of man's relationship to the animals upon the earth as the Lord has given it to us by revelation, not as it is taught by man in the world, but the true relationship with, which exists between man and beast. The idea prevails in general, I believe, in the religious world where the gospel truth is misunderstood, that man is the only being on the earth that has what is called a soul or spirit. We know that this is not the case, for the Lord has said that not only has man a spirit and is thereby a living soul, but likewise the beasts of the field and the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea have spirits, and hence are living souls. But thus does not make them kinsmen to the sons and daughters of God. They are our Father's creations, not his offspring. And that is the great difference between man and beast. Page 63, and we're at 80%. It would be a very strange world where animals were not found if after the resurrection of the dead we discovered that man was the only living creature with immortality we would certainly consider a very it a very strange world of course the christian think, thinks that we're going to all be living in the clouds and playing hearts for all eternity which actually kind of sounds boring after a while i'm pretty sure that would get boring uh, and it's not true anyway, so it doesn't matter. Anyway, but continuing on with this quote. Yet the idea does prevail that man has a spirit and the animals have not. Some people think this is the great thing that distinguishes man from the other beings, from all other beings. The fish, the fowl, the beasts of the field lived before they were placed naturally on this earth. And so did the plants that are upon the face of the earth. The spirit that possesses the bodies of the animals are in the similitude of their bodies. In other words, the bodies of animals come from the spirits which possess them and which existed before they were placed on the earth. That which is spiritual being in the likeness of, of that which is temporal and that which is temporal in the likeness of that which is spiritual. The spirit of man in the likeliness I'm sorry, in the likeness of his person, as also the spirit of beast and every other creature which God has created. Brigham Young, in Journal of Discourses, volume 18, page 257, states, I will give you a part of my own vision upon this matter. Mankind is composed of two distinct elements. The first is a spiritual organization in eternity. The second is a natural organization on this earth. Formed out of material of which the earth is composed, man is first spiritual, then temporal, as it is written in the revelations of God to man 
All things were first created spiritual and secondly temporal. That is, spirits were begotten, born, and educated in the celestial world and were brought forth by celestial bodies. Real quick. When this earth becomes a great sea or a great Yermum Thummum, this earth will become a celestial world. When we were raised up as spirits, we lived on a celestial world that was an old earth. And when it says that a new heaven and a new earth were created, or will be created at the end of this earth, when this earth becomes a celestial sphere, a new heaven and a new earth will be created, and this will become the pre-existence of that world. Same as the uh, the place that we came from was a pre-existence to this world. Anyway, continuing on with Brigham Young. By tracing this little, uh, this subject a little, we might understand how this is brought about. The spirits before inhabiting bodies are as pure and holy as the angels or as the gods. They will know, they know no evil. Oh, well, that's interesting. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Anyway, actually, I know he doesn't. Uh, I think he knew more than most Mormons today, of course, but I don't think he fully understood it. Anyway, this their first estate is the commencement of their experience. And uh, just so you know, I don't accept Brigham Young as the Lord's anointed. Um, according to section 124, Jesus said he would reject the church with their dead if they did not build the Nauvoo Temple. But there's another principle, too. If they don't do what he has told them to do, the principles and stuff, he rejects the church with their dead anyway. That's the principle. But when the saints did not complete the Nauvoo Temple, according to section 124, there was a whole bunch of stuff that happened that he said would happen if they were rejected. And all the stuff that he said would happen if they completed the Nauvoo Temple, all of that stuff didn't happen. So uh, I don't accept Brigham Young or John Taylor or Wilfred Woodruff or Gordon B. Hinckley or Russell M. Nelson at all as the Lord's anointed, like they would like you to think that they are. In fact, Brigham Young knew that he was not a prophet. Uh, he says, oh, everybody says I am, so I must be, but nope. Anyway, we're on page 64 at 92%, and the guest call-in number is 917 917- Eight eight nine eight eight two seven. That's nine one seven eight eight nine eight eight two seven. Joseph F. Smith in the Journal of Discourses, Volume Twenty Five, Page Two Hundred and Fifty, stated: "With God, all things are spiritual. There is nothing temporal in Him at all, and there ought to be no distinction with us in regard to these things." Our earthly or temporal existence is merely a continuance of that which is spiritual. Every step we take in the great journey of life, the great journey of eternity, is a step in advance or in retrogression. We are here in mortality. It is true, but we are ahead of that condition We occupied before we came here and took upon us mortality. 
we are a step in advance of our former state. What is the body without the spirit? It is lifeless clay. What is it that affects this lifeless clay? It is the spirit. It is the immortal part, the eternal part, uh, the eternal being that existed before it came here, that existed within us, and that will continue to exist, and that by and by will redeem these tabernacles and bring them forth out of the graves. This whole mission of ours is spiritual. The work we have to do here, although we call it temple, pertains alike to our spiritual and temporal salvation. All right, so that's the end of the chapter. When we come back on tomorrow, uh, we'll be in chapter 6, starting on page 65, and we're going to talk about the birth of the Spirit. So I've had some people ask some questions on the Facebook. So I post these every day on Facebook. Let's see here. Okay, so this doesn't have anything to do with this chapter that we're reading, but this woman is trying to argue with me about how Jesus wasn't married. And uh, I actually told her that do more research on the topic and you will know that he was married to remain a single bachelor in the days of Jesus was considered almost as bad as a murderer because of the generations that should have been born through the family. Jesus would not have had as <clears throat> that Jesus would not have had as a husband and, <clears throat> and father. So <clears throat> basically what I'm saying here is that in the tradition and culture of the Jews at the time, um, a woman being barren was considered a great curse, but a man who refused to be married was almost like being a murderer because all of the children who should have been born to Israel that were not born, they considered that almost as bad because all of those generations of children that should have come from him end in the line ends. That's why murder is so horrible in the eyes of the Jews and in the eyes of God. When Abel was murdered by Cain, all of those generations that should have come out of him didn't at the beginning of the creation of this earth. And that was serious. You know, it's serious because of the murder in, in and of itself. But when a person is murdered, um, it ends their line unless they've had children. It's still bad, but Jesus being a single bachelor um, at the age of 30 not having children or being married by that time, that that's willful rebellion in the Jewish culture and, and, and traditions. Um, continuing on with what I said to her, if he had not been married, the religious leaders of his day would have made it an issue, but they didn't because they knew he was married and had children. When the Romans hijacked early Christianity, they made it seem like Jesus was celibate to match their Roman traditions. And then this stupid woman. Okay, this stupid woman. I'm sorry. You're a stupid woman, Julie. Um, she says, chapter and verse, please. Since when did G Jesus do anything that was traditional? <sighs> okay, chapter and verse. We already talked about this. Okay, you're not going to find it. Because 
the scriptures have been whitewashed by Rome after they hijacked early Christianity. That's why they did away with the Torah, even though Jesus... You know what drives me nuts? These stupid Christians will say, uh, what would Jesus do? What would, he's our example. We should do everything that he tells us to do. He lived the Torah perfectly, and he told you to live the Torah perfectly. And he said, I do not do away with one jot or one tittle of the Torah. Also in Isaiah, it talks about the lawlessness of the people that God will destroy. In the Torah, or <clears throat> I'm sorry, in the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, it doesn't say lawlessness. It says Torahlessness, people who refuse to live the Torah. Because God never did away with the Torah. He fulfilled certain things in that uh, the, sacrif- uh, the sacrificial offerings that do not need to be done because he did a sacrif- uh, an eternal atonement for us. But those rules in the Torah that are actually God's rules, he never did away with them. And I think that it's foolish for the ignorant Christian to run around and say, well... He nailed that all to the cross. But we're going to still keep the Ten Commandments because they're easy and they're good. Oh, and we'll keep tithing because we want to make some money. But, you know, it's just cherry-picking Christian hypocrites. Anyway, let's see here. Okay, here's another uh, question that uh, I've been working on today with... uh, with somebody okay so just a quick question I had did Joshua actually stop the sun or did the earth stop spinning from the passage of the Bible I actually believe that God allowed time to slow down and that's why it seemed to stop so if God allowed time to slow down for these people the rest of the world would have kept on going on spinning and like no no problems but if you were to walk upon these people and and stand upon the mountain and look down in the valley and see what was going on their time would slow down but they would have been moving very fast and i believe god can manipulate time like that And so I don't believe that the earth stopped, and I don't believe the sun stopped either. I believe God slowed down time for these people so that an hour of normal time could have lasted 10 hours. And I know God can do those kind of things. So that's how I believe that happened. Um, This individual says, I've always wondered why didn't God put people on the other planets in the solar system? And I said it could be that this planet is the only planet in the Goldilocks position that can sustain us. He says, I've heard of that in science books, but then what is the point of the other planets? I said they could have already been here. The scripture says they are for times or signs. He says, gotcha, I know that planets like Jupiter are shielded to the Earth from meteorites, at least that was what I was told in science. So, um, let me see here. I'm just trying to see if there's any other questions that... I think somebody did ask some questions, but I'm not seeing it here. 
Okay, here it is. All right, so here is some questions about this specific topic. I'm not quite sure what this means. With God, all things are spiritual. There is nothing temporal with him at all. And there ought to be no distinction with us in regard to these things. It seems to me things are things. I'm typing on a computer keyboard. It's a thing. Um, I understand the plastic parts are made of carbon of carbon chains. Metal is mostly copper. Integrated circuits are silicon. It's a thing. What am I missing? I don't know what would make it spiritual temp- or temporal. Well, there are things that are, you know, plastic or whatever, and uh, that doesn't have a spiritual component. It would be temporal. And I don't know that this quote that she's quoting from is actually something that I even worry about. Um, as I said before, I don't accept any of these men as prophets, seers, and revelators. Um, but I think Joseph did talk about this a little bit. But I think what they're trying to get to is that everything was created temporally before it was created spiritually. Now, of course, your plastic toys that you give your kids or your, you know, your metal cars or whatever it is, you know, they are material substance. I I believe when, when God created... Uh, in the Hebrew, actually, I know uh, it means to organize an organized matter, um, but it doesn't mean that he created things spiritually in the fact that he didn't create um, elements that already existed. He just organized them. Sorry. Um, Adrian says, I'm not trying to be difficult. I really don't understand. Joseph F. Smith says things should be spiritual, not temporal. It's a keyboard. I don't under, understand how it is either spiritual or temporal. And I don't either, because Joseph F. Smith wasn't a prophet, seer, and revelator. He was a man speaking with speculation. And now, I don't know all things either, but he didn't either. So, I do have a question about the relationship between the spirit and tabernacle body. Does the spirit have memory, or is it... That not that in the brain? If I forget my computer password, is that a brain failing or a spirit failing? I assume the brain is part of the body, not part of the spirit. And you would be correct that the spirit has memory, but interestingly enough, so does the body. When somebody receives a transplant of an organ, there's memory that comes with that. There's attitude and there's other things that come with that that's more than just the physical part of the flesh that is being transported into your body. And people that receive organs, sometimes they'll remember things that happen in those that organ, organ donor's life and they're dead. That somehow the memory gets transformed. So I think there is a component of memory in the flesh, but also that um, the spirit has flesh because, uh, not flesh, well, they do, but, um, or they can. Anyway, uh, but the spirit has memory. So I have run into a lot of people that recognize me from before they, they were born. 
they know who I am. They may not know completely who I am, but one individual when I was in Nauvoo, Illinois, I was watching a play in Nauvoo, Illinois, and this man was an older missionary, and he was in the play. And my wife and I, and our two oldest, when they were younger, were sitting in the front row. My wife was pregnant with our third child at the time. Anyway, as soon as the play was done, he came down and grabbed my arm and shook my hand and hugged me. And he had tears in his eyes. And he was so grateful to see me because he knew exactly who I am. Some people remember that. Now, he knew that from a memory in the pre-existence that his spirit carried with him, that his body would not have known, but his spirit knew exactly who I was. So, uh, let's see here. How much does the spirit control actions? If I decide to leave work early today, is that my brain or my spirit? It could be both. Your body gets tired, and that that influences your spirit to to make decisions because the spirit is what makes decisions for you because you are spirit clothed in flesh I know if my if I damage my brain it can affect my actions desires focus feelings and even personality yes I have heard of brain research and it seems that the brain and the spinal cord really control everything is the spirit just along for the ride? No, because your body ha- is a machine that has to function properly and there's certain programming that your body has to um, to continue to survive. That That's its job. To survive as long as possible until it finally wears out and then it dies and you release. The silver cord is released and you... You go back to the spirit world. You know, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Uh, also, um, Solomon talked about loosing of the silver cord. Now, a lot of people don't know what that means. When your body is separate from your spirit, say when you're dreaming at night or whenever you're sleeping and you're going into the astral world, there are certain things that are happening that you are not aware of and they happen every day. And there is a connection between the physical body, the temple body, and the spirit when your spirit has left the body. There is a cord. It's a spiritual cord and it connects you to it connects you to your temple body. Now, if that cord is severed, your body will stop and it will die. The mind will shut down and you'll be brain dead and you'll die. And um, when somebody dies in their sleep, I believe that it's their time to go and their cord is just severed. Um, But traumatic uh, things that happen to the body can also sever the cord. Um, And then there's some other things too. I'm not going to get into it at this point. Um, Let's see. I know if I damage... Oh, I already read that. I have heard brain research. Oh, and I already read that. Okay. Occasionally, I'll I'll wake up and remember a dream. Is that something my brain makes up, or is that alternate reality? 
an image of the spirit. And it could be both, but I believe that when your spirit leaves your body, that your mind goes into kind of like a screen um, protector mode, kind of like with a computer. And um, your flesh, your mind will uh, will flash different ideas and stuff. Um, but I believe at that point, for the most part, your body's on sleep mode, of course. Um, but your spirit does leave your body every single night. There are at least two or three uh, spirit beings that are assigned to watch over you and they take an account of your day. They speak to you every single night. Sometimes when they have you out of the body, your spirit will wake up and realize that they're there. That doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Occasionally I will wake up and remember a dream. Is that something my brain makes up or is that all alternate reality and image from the spirit. If, as Orson Pratt says, the spirit is pure and perfect, it would seem all the bad things we do come from the brain. Is this true? No, because um, spirits rebelled in the pre-existence. There are a lot of things that, like, to control the flesh is to, con uh, is to control the spirit as well. But there's things that your body does that affect your life and have nothing to do with your spirit. <laughs> Excuse me. Question. Why did Jesus claim that he and his father were the only eternal existing beings? They, they didn't. They didn't claim that. That's just something that oh, modern Christians, uh, apostate Christians teach. That has nothing to do with with what Jesus taught. Not even a little bit. So, and that's Julie again. Julie is a Christian who has entered into my groups and she is trolling the groups with all of her ignorant apostate Christianity who does not understand or know that God actually does have prophets. And somebody asked, why does God need prophets? After Jesus came... Why is there a prophets needed? I don't know. Revel our Romans. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans chapter fourteen or twelve or sixteen. I don't remember. It talks about the great deliverer that will come in the future. That it that will be a prophet. Also, that there's two prophets in the book of Revelations that come. Uh, so obviously there's prophets after Jesus. Um, the the seventies were prophets. Paul was a prophet. He was also an apostle, an eyewitness. Now there's two different levels of apostles. Um, you have your handle me and see type apostles, and that would be somebody who is part of the quorum of the twelve. And then you had your seventy apostles, and that would be somebody like Paul that had seen Jesus but had not embraced him and could not be a witness of his physical uh, resurrection, but he was still a witness in the, that he had seen him. So there's two different levels of apostles in that sense. Um, let's see here. 
and I cannot remember why I got onto that topic. Oh, yeah, okay, so, um, prophets. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that there will be certain uh, offices within the church, which include apostles and prophets, until all come in the unity of the faith. Now, what's their job? For edification, for teaching, for directing discourse, for directing um, interpretation of scripture so that people are led correctly in the scriptures. And the fact that there hasn't been prophets and apostles on the earth, this is why the whole Christian, Christian, Christian world, they all have different ideas and different doctrines and different whatever, and they are not all in the unity of the faith. Because they don't believe prophets and apostles. And whenever God tries to send a prophet or apostle to correct them, they will cling to their false traditions. And they'll reject the prophet or apostle that comes among them. So why should God even bother? But they're not in the unity of the faith. God sends prophets and apostles to correct doctrines. To restore truth that has been lost. So why wouldn't God need prophets and apostles today? The fact is he does. Because all of the world is out of order. And that includes the Mormons, that includes the fundamentalists, that includes all of the Christians, that includes all of the other religions. They're all out of order because Satan has done a dang good job at doing what he does. Is it any wonder that Jesus said the way is... The way that leads to life is narrow, and few there be that find it. But the path that leads to damnation is wide and broad, and many there uh, enter therein at. Well, they're entering in this broad path because they're going towards the traditions of man mingled with Scripture. Or maybe not even mingled with Scripture, maybe mingled with the other philosophies of men. You know, and they, they, they're God unto themselves. They make up their own rules, and they think, well, this works, and that works, and I'm just going to go with this and that. And they never get revelation for themselves. That's how, in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, it talks about, you know, these celestial beings who are damned, but they do receive a degree of glory in heaven. And damned doesn't mean destroyed. Damned only means stopped in your progression. Um... Anyway, but they, these are they who are some of one, some of another. These are they who followed Paul or Peter or Cephas or Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. And even those who follow Jesus Christ who do not get revelation for themselves and confirmation of the Spirit, they're celestial beings. They are damned. Because, well... They'll say, well, Jesus said this, and Jesus said that, and they, they take what is written and they misinterpret it. Like this Jewy girl, this woman, she misinterprets scripture and she thinks that because she understands scripture without revelation, by the way, that she has some kind of authority and she can go around and attack other Christians because they don't believe like her. 
but she has not had any revelation at all. When Jesus returns, and, and many of these fools, I'm sorry, they are fools, will say, have not we done many great works in thy name? You know, these are Christians who have done miracles. To do a miracle is no big thing. Satan has power to do miracles. And they'll say, have we not done many great works in, in thy name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, the true translation is that you never knew me. That That's the true translation. Like Jesus knows who you are. You never knew him. You knew about him, but you never knew enough to get revelation to know him, to know his truth, to know the true doctrines that he was teaching. What you have is scripture mingled with the doctrines of man or the doctrines of demons, and that's what you're teaching in your churches today. And that goes for every single one of you. Doctrine and Covenant section 85 talks about the house of God being out of order and that Jesus would have to send one mighty and strong to set the house of God in order. Which implies that the whole house, not just the LDS church, but every restoration branch and every apostate form of Christianity and everybody else are all out of order. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. So God has this prophet who is mighty and strong. And in Isaiah chapter 28, it says that he goes among the drunkards of Ephraim in the last days. Who's the drunkards of Ephraim? That's the Latter-day Saints. All of them. Not just the Brighamites that came west. All of them. All of the break-offs out of the Brighamite church. All of the restoration churches. All of them. They're the drunkards of Ephraim. And he teaches they who have been weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. But they are out of order. And that's why God has sent me to teach they who have been weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast and to reset everything. Everything's been reset. Daniel chapter 12, uh, the man clothed in linen scatters or severs the power priesthood of all the holy people. Go and read it. It's in Daniel chapter 12. It's a prophecy that was fulfilled July 15th, 2013. The holy people in the last days are the people of the restoration and the power that that the man clothed in linen severs is the priesthood and all of its ordinances. It's a hard reset. To set the house of God in order. And when I asked God why he wanted me to do this, because he gave me the keys and the authority to do this, when I saw him in the flesh in 2003, he said, if they will not accept you as my witness, I will not accept them. And that makes me sad because there's people that I really like that are going to be cursed for rejecting my witness. And I like them. I don't want them to be cursed, but that's between them and God. And I'll talk a little bit more about this, but this this part of the portion is getting too long. So uh, I'm going to go to the live program. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. Okay, we're going live. Thank you for listening.
All right, welcome to the live portion of the radio show. Like I just said in the recording, the phone number is 917-889-8827. And Kim is going to be reading how to qualify for the Celestial Kingdom today. I can't remember what chapter she's in, but the last uh, time she read, I think it was on Thursday. But Emma, you need to learn to stop interrupting. Cause... So let me teach my son something about radio especially podcasts. You may be able to understand what I'm saying as you are over-talking to me, but audience only hears two people talking at the same time. So anytime you decide to start talking before I'm done talking, they're not going to be able to understand me. So Emmett, what is the chapter that you are so rudely interrupting me that's trying to to be helpful, but what's the chapter that mom's going to be reading? 11. What's the name of the chapter? Gospel Perceptions. Oh, okay. It's really hard to understand you, so why don't you have your headset on? I do. I do. Mom, can you hear do? Me okay. fine. I know, because I'm in the same room That's as because her. mom is in the same room. <laughs> Oh, I'm not. I'm she doesn't have her headset on, so uh, it's like an echo. She doesn't have hers on. can hear myself, but the headset doesn't pick up that audio, which is good. Oh, okay, good. All right, well, uh, just so Mom knows, I'm going to the spur. No uh, long roads I... for me tonight. It's all shorties. Mom says, oh, shorties? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, while while my wife is trying to find her place uh, and do all the things that that she hasn't already done, do be prepared. Um, I was just talking to – I got yelled at today. Well, I wasn't yelled at. She asked me to not post so much in – Mormon Fundamentalism, which is a private group that I've been in for many years, and uh, a friend, I consider her a friend, uh, told me, well, she she became a moderator, I think a couple months ago, about last month, and I guess she made an announcement that the new rule is no uh, is only posting once per day, but she never posted that in the rules of the group. And I told her that my job is to teach, and I'm going to continue posting. And I don't see what the problem is. If they are interested in one thing but not another, they can choose what they want to read. But, like, all of my teachings are, like, long, and they're not – I mean, I do post some short quotes and stuff from time to time, but – Whatever. Anyway, I I told her, no, I'm not going to stop posting. So I posted like, I think eight lessons came up the other day. So over the course of all these years, like I'll do, uh, it'll go back in the memories on Facebook and there'll be like one teaching per day, per year. And sometimes there's multiple years worth of teaching. Where, you know, I've done video or whatever, podcast, 
and I just posted the memories of those things that I had already posted in the group before. I was just bringing them up because they were in my memories. And uh, anyway, I told her, look, I've been I've been commanded by the Father to do what I'm doing, and I'm not going to stop just because you come in here and decide that you want to moderate the group. And anyway, I've been in the group for years, and why is it that, uh, you know, you, you don't have to worry about what I'm posting. You know, anyway, so... Uh, testing, testing. Okay, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, anyway, um, she uh, she unfriended me, and she uh, kicked me out of the group, which is fine, because, like, I'm just at the point where, you know what? So here's the thing about me. Okay, I used to believe that Joseph Smith was God the Witness, like all, fundament, all good fundamentalists do, and I believed a bunch of other things. And then in 2013, God commanded me to kneel before him. And I knelt down. And he said, ask me who you are. Because he was trying to tell me before that, and I wouldn't listen because it was too fantastic. You know, I, I was just like, well, yeah, I've had these experiences, but I'm a nobody. I'm just a truck driver. You know, I, I'm not a perfect guy. I fight. This fight, you know, uh, I don't look for it, but I don't put up with it when it comes my way. And uh, I learned a long time ago that if I'm being attacked, that I must destroy. Because <laughs> uh, I was a wrestler in high school, and I can pin people down pretty quick. But if I let them back up, they're just going to keep attacking me. So I'm pretty brutal if I'm attacked. Anyway, and like I know my weaknesses. I cuss. And uh, like I said, I fight from time to time. I don't put up with a bunch of crap. And uh, and I don't consider myself, I didn't consider myself like a prophet, you know. I mean, I kind of did because I believe all people can be prophets because God is no respecter of persons. But I didn't consider myself the Lord's anointed, even though. I had seen the father face to face and he did place his hands on my head and fill me up to himself in 2003. So anyway, he says, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. And then I did. And he showed me who I am and why I was called, which surprised me. And it took me a minute to really grasp what he was trying to tell me. And then I finally turned to him and I said, Am I the witness? And he said, well, it has to be somebody with a big smile on his face. Like he was so, like, he was happy that I was finally waking up a little bit. Like he had kept trying to tell me and I just couldn't accept. And that wasn't what I was getting. Like I wasn't getting that as like um, the, the, the prompting that I would not listen to because I was like, this is, this is ridiculous. He was trying to tell me that I was one mighty and strong. But in this vision that he brought me up and showed me, he showed me that for this earth, God the creator, God the redeemer, God the witness, and 12 others that stand in front of them are all mighty and strong. And that I stood in the 12 as one mighty and strong. And when Lucifer was cast out of heaven, I was chosen to take his place as the bearer of light and truth. And I am an apostle, not only of the son, but of the father. 
okay, uh, there was a lot more that came with that over the course of time. He began to show me all these different things in the Dead Sea Scrolls, how it talks about me uh, in, in detail, even even to, to the point of my red hair. And uh, that was the scroll that was found in Cave 4 that talks about that. And I've posted that information before. But also Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori, who saw Jesus, who was a Kabbalist rabbi. Um, and he died in 2006. And he said that the Messiah, and he's speaking of Messiah ben Joseph, is on the earth now, and he doesn't know who he is. But when he wakes up and he comes on the scene, on the world stage, that uh, many people will reject him, but few of the humble will accept him. He also said that this man would not come on the scene until shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon. I didn't know any of that stuff until after that all happened. God told me in 2013 to prepare to do podcasts to spread my message. And I started the kingdom of God or nothing shortly after the death of Ariel Schroen in 2014. God also showed me in in, uh, Joseph Smith history, chapter one, verse 40, how Moroni said that Isaiah chapter 11 was about to happen. And that is speaking of the Davidic servants. There's four of them. They are called the stem, the root, the rod, and the branch. And how the stem is not Jesus, but Messiah ben Joseph. So people get that wrong too. And that also the man of Acts chapter 3, 22 and 23 is Christ. But the day had not yet come when he would be rejected by his people. And he taught me that Jesus had already been rejected by his people and that I am that man. So if you go to Acts chapter 3, 22 and 23, it says uh, that God will raise up a man like unto Moses. Him also shall you hear. And all they who will not hear the words of that prophet will be destroyed from among the people. Okay, so I am that man. Now, that creates a dilemma for me. First of all, everybody thinks I'm crazy. But second of all, all of my friends and family that I love, they don't accept. And I'm not talking about my immediate family. I'm talking about my, my siblings, my mom, my friends, all of my friends out there. I'm talking about my friend Benjamin Schaefer and Moroni Jessup. And Ashley Rankin Ruth, I don't remember what her last name is now. She just got married. These people that I really love, and I think that they are good people, none of them, Kevin Kraut included, none of them listen to me. When I tell them that God had me sever the ordinances in 2013, which is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 12, so they have to get rebaptized and receive their ordinances through me. None of them come. One individual has come from among that group of people. I've had a lot of other people get baptized, but from among that group of learned people, he is baptized. And part of what God has told me 
is that everybody needs to gather in Emory County, Utah. And I moved down here after I was told this is where the gathering spot is for, to prepare for the exodus into the wilderness. Whenever that happens, this is where we're supposed to be gathering. And that I'm supposed to organize the School of the Prophets and also the Church of the Living Messiah. That is what the Father has called his church in these last days. Not the Church of Christ and not the Church of Jesus Christ. It's the Church of the Living Messiah. And these individuals, even the one who got, got baptized and received his, uh, some of uh, the ordinances that he asked for and that I, I, received, I, I felt like it was good for him to receive it, so I gave them to him. But I told him, this is where we're gathering. This is where we're supposed to be. He doesn't show up. He goes and buys a plot of land out in the desert, and now I find out that he's going to go down to another place down in southern Utah because that's where he feels like he needs to be. So I'm like, okay, whatever. You guys do whatever you feel like you need to do. But God has told me to tell all of you listening out there to share my witness and to gather the saints. And people who do not gather are not hearing the words of this prophet, who I am, the man like unto Moses, and the warning is that they shall be destroyed from among the people. And in this group that I got kicked out of today, um, I've been in there for years. And I might get one or two likes, like people like that I did a thing, but I don't think anybody actually listens to me. Because, see, they already know too much and they cannot be taught. And uh, if Ashley had been listening to my podcast, which she said she had, because her husband is new to Mormon fundamentalism and she wants to teach him, she said, well, I've been listening to your excellent podcast. If she had been listening for any length of time, she would know who I am or who I claim to be and take this serious. But they don't care and I'm getting to the point where I just I, I don't want to do this anymore but see the problem for me is uh, Ezekiel 33 states a, a correct principle if you have been warned you must warn your neighbor so all of you out there that have listened to any of these programs and you know what I claim and you don't take it seriously and I have warned you and prophesied and told you what is going to happen if you don't listen, then everybody that you should have warned, or at least let them know that, hey, this guy's saying these things, maybe you ought to hear him. The blood is on your skirts. Ezekiel 33, check it out. And so it makes me really sad when my friends, who I consider friends, they just, they listen to me and they just, they don't do anything. They just don't care. Apparently, I'm just, uh, and I told them, I'm going in the depths, so I might cut out a little bit. But I told her, I said, I hope for your, your sake that I am Looney Tunes batshit crazy. 
Because I would rather Looney Tunes bat shit crazy than have all of my friends be cursed because they wouldn't listen to the message that I have tried to share with them since 2014. And it makes me sad and it makes me angry. Not because I even don't, I don't even want to do this job. My favorite thing, and I've said it before, I like to be the guy in class that sits on the side and makes comments. I do not want to be a leader. I don't even know what in the world I'm supposed to do other than teach they who have been weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast, which is the job of the one mighty and strong who I am. I don't even know what to do. And I was thinking, well, it would be nice if we had a school of the prophets and a lot of people that actually are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast, like basically people who are ready for the meat of the gospel. Like we could talk about these things. We could have a council in the school of the prophets. I'm not trying to be an authoritative tyrant, but I know what God has told me and I I'm just ignored by everybody, which Isaiah 49 says. And, and by the way, that Christian that I was answering earlier on the, the program in the recorded portion, Isaiah talks about a Davidic servant that will come and gather the remnant and lead them in the highways of the top of the mountains and in the desert places, and that Zion would be born in the wilderness and in the desert places, and that's all in Isaiah. So when you're all, oh, we don't need no more prophets today, well, Isaiah talked about it, and you're an ignorant fool if you don't read the scripture in context with the interpretation that God has given. And you only get that through revelation or by hearing the prophet, and the only way you can know that it's true is by getting confirmation of the Holy Spirit. And now I'm I'm contending with false prophets and Judas goats on one side and on the other, and people listen to them because they speak smooth things to their ears. And they, they mingle sometimes even deeper truths with the doctrines of men and lead key people astray and key points of doctrine that need to be understood because they're Judas goats. They're narcissists who are never wrong and and will never apologize for being wrong, but simply change their tune according to where they can be caught. And then they'll say, oh, we never said that before. I never said that before. I don't know where you're getting that from. I don't know. Why don't you go back and listen to, I don't know, all of your podcasts before last week when you heard me talking about that on one of my videos or one of my podcasts and you change your tune because, oh, Oh, he caught me. I better change my tune a little bit. So, so I, uh, you know, like I never, I never said gaslighting. Now I know that God condemns liars, and people who do those things are liars, and they make me sick, and it, and it makes me vomit in my mouth every time I hear some of these people and the false doctrines that they teach. Anyway, we've only got 30 minutes left in the live streaming portion of the radio show. I'm going to shut my trap. I said my piece, and um, I'll let Kim go on and give you a an enlightening message from a really good book 
Um, and I, I completely love James B. Cox and what he did. But Kim, uh, are you going to unmute yourself or? Absolutely. Okay. Well, but the other thing too. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I'll, I'll make it quick. Yeah. I have been okay. doing live radio shows with phone numbers to call in, so you can question me, or or refuse something that I say, or whatever. Since 2014, and even before that, I was a co-host on it uh, from 2012 on another program. And people don't call in. They ignore this 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 stuff, and I know that there's, you know, a couple hundred people a day that might listen, but, you know, they never say anything. Anyway, all right, I'm going to mute myself. Go ahead, Kim. Okay. <laughs> I am going to be reading in Chapter 11, like we said 20 minutes ago. Um, <clears throat> on page 145. It is Gospel Perceptions, Section 3, Guilt Feeling. As reviewed in Chapter 12, one who walks in spiritual darkness suffers from many consequences. That is, when one is found guilty under the demands of justice, he will suffer the withdrawal of the light of Christ. This withdrawal of the light of Christ brings spiritual suffering. And I don't like to have an echo. So if you could fix that, that would be amazing. Thank you. Yep. <clears throat> Alma 42.11 says, Their souls were miserable being cut off from the presence of the Lord. And D&C section 19 verse 20 says, Lest you suffer these punishments of which in the smallest, yea, even the least degree you have tasted at the time I withdrew my spirit. End quote. DNC 19, verse 20. Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph Smith's mother, relates what happened when the Lord withdrew his spirit. This comes from Marvin J. Ashton, Speeches of the Year, 1972 to 73, page 104. At 8 o'clock, we set the victuals on the table, as we were expecting him every moment. We waited till 9, and he came not, till 10, and he was not there, till 11. Still, he did not make his appearance, but at half past 12, we saw him walking with a slow and measured tread towards the house, his eyes fixed thoughtfully upon the ground. On coming to the gate, he stopped instead of passing through and got upon the fence and sat there some time with his hat drawn over his eyes. At length, he entered the house, soon after which we sat down to the table, Mr. Harris with the rest. He took up his knife and fork as if he were going to use them, but immediately dropped them. Hiram, observing this, said, Martin, why do you not eat? Are you sick? Upon which Mr. Harris pressed his hands upon his temples and cried out in a tone of deep anguish, Oh, I have lost my soul. I have lost my soul. Joseph, who had not expressed his fears till now, sprang from the table, exclaiming, Martin, have you lost that manuscript? Have you broken your oath and brought down condemnation upon my head as well as your own? Yes, it is gone, replied Martin, and I know not where. Oh, my God, said Joseph, clenching his hands. All is lost. 
All is lost. What shall I do? I have sinned. It is I who tempted the wrath of God. I should have been satisfied with the first answer which I received from the Lord. For he told me that it was not safe to let the writing go out of my possession. He wept and groaned and walked the floor continually. At length, he told Martin, go back and search again. No, said Martin, it is all in vain, for I have ripped open beds and pillows, and I know it is not there. Then must I, said Joseph, return with such a tale as this? I dare not do it. And now, and how shall I appear before the Lord? Of what rebuke am I not worthy from the angel of the Most High? I besought him not to mourn so, for perhaps the Lord would forgive him after a short season of humiliation and repentance. But what could I do to comfort him when he saw all that the family in the same situation of mind as himself for sobs and groans and the most bitter lamentations filled the house. However, Joseph was more distressed than the rest, as he better understood the consequences of disobedience. And he continued pacing back and forth, meantime weeping and grieving until about sunset, when, by persuasion, he took a little nourishment. That is Lucy Mack Smith, History of Joseph Smith, pages 127 through 29 and page 132. The purpose of guilt feelings is to warn us that we are leaving the light of Christ and turning unto. These feelings are like the negative feedback that guides a missile. That is, whenever the missile starts to leave the path that leads to the target, a signal is emitted that causes a correction of the missile's flight. If the missile system concentrated on the negative signal, it would leave the path permanently. Instead, it reacts to the negative signal by getting back on course. Some people, when they feel those guilt feelings caused by the withdrawal of the spirit, humble themselves before the Lord and turn back into the light. Some use the guilt feelings to put themselves down so they feel worthless, thereby moving quickly into spiritual darkness. Still, others justify themselves in their sin, shutting off the powers and love from heaven, These people are the hardest to help out of the spiritual darkness. The Lord was referring to this group when he said, The guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. That's 1 Nephi chapter 16, verse 2. But if one chooses to remain in spiritual darkness and not repent, the demands of justice will awaken his spiritual soul, and he will feel the pains of guilt again at the last day. Mosiah chapter 2, verse 38 says, Therefore, if that man repenteth not, and remaineth and dieth an enemy to God, the demands of divine justice do awaken his immortal soul to a lively sense of his own guilt, which doth cause him to shrink from the presence of the Lord, and doth fill his breast with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire, whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. End quote from Mosiah chapter 2, verse Okay, well, Kim is uh, doing whatever she's doing. Um, So when the spirit withdraws from you, you will be left to the buffetings of Satan, and the exact opposite of the fruit of the spirit will be what you will feel. So if you're feeling anxiety and depression and anger 
and shortness, whatever, and, and not patience and love and peace and these type of feelings, it's because the spirit is warning you that what path you are on is an incorrect path. Now, in the state of Utah, there is a massive problem with depression and with anxiety. And the false prophets, the Judas goats, will tell you, oh, you just need to meditate it and get over it and don't worry about it. No, you need to repent. Because whatever it is that you're holding in your mind, especially when you're trying to understand truth, and those feelings come upon you, that means the spirit has left you, was withdrawn from you, and that anxiety has replaced it as a sign that what you are doing is following lies. And because so many of the uh, leaders of the church and others are, have been teaching uh, changing the gospel, changing the ordinances, changing and changing and changing from the restoration, the people in the state of Utah that believe these men are prophets, seers, and revelators, or whatever, or they believe the doctrines taught by these people that have changed since the beginning of the restoration, these people are feeling these anxiety feelings and these depression feelings, and they're turning to pharmaceuticals uh, muffle that out and try to overcome it chemically. And that might be something that works for a little while, but let me tell you that when the spirit withdraws from you and uh, because you're believing false, false uh, doctrine, that you need to repent and stop listening to these people who are telling you, oh, you just need to get over it. Oh, just take some of these pharmaceuticals that alter your mind so that the spirit, uh, the testimony of the spirit or the buffetings of Satan is dulled in you so that you don't repent and turn back to the first work for the restoration. Okay, so uh, go ahead, Kim. I'm pulling into the spur. Okay, thank you for that. I was reminded as you were talking about that. Um, earlier this week, or was it last week, um, I was reminded that my yearly review comes up, and that makes me nervous, and I'm like, oh, no, what if I'm not amazing? What if I don't do everything perfect? And I just have a lot of anxiety over the whole thing because um, having somebody come in and judge you based on, you know, a 45-minute period or so, you know, an hour um, when they come in um, based on, your effectiveness as a teacher is a little bit um, nerve-wracking because you're under a microscope for a while just based on whatever may arise in the classroom at that time. <laughs> so it's a little nerve-wracking. And at first, I was very concerned about it and worried. And then I was trying to think of it more in a spiritual sense of, wait a minute, this does not judge who I am. and in the eternities, uh, it's not judging um, how God feels of me. It is just, uh, if you will, to um, help me to stay focused and see if there is something that I could help to possibly better um, my classroom and um, to help better myself in the way that I do my job. Um, but at first it was to me, I was like, oh, no, it's so scary. And I'm like, wait a minute, 
they can look at all of my test scores, they can look at the results of behavioral um, scores in my classroom and everything. Um, also with my um, work with my, all the employees that I work with and across the board, I feel like it's very positive and it looks good. So this 45 minutes is not, you know, by any means the judgment of my character or how God loves me or even how effective I am as an individual or as a teacher. So, um, so with that being said, um, a lot of times, just like we were talking about right before this chapter, the way that we judge ourselves is sometimes more harsh than we are judged by others. Oh, I'm sorry about the screaming in the background. <clears throat> so, okay, let me continue on and read. And earthly, oh, did you have something to say? You just unmuted Off the yourself. the green light. Oh, are you, am I unmuted? You just are, yep, off the scales to three green light or something, and I was like, is that what was so important? Just kidding. <laughs> no, that's, I was just saying that that kind of anxiety is a different kind of anxiety than what I'm talking about. That's not the spirit oh, leading okay. you. That might, be the, that might be the adversary trying to uh, give you some issues, you know, get you to worry about things and be distracted from other things that are more important but that's not the spirit leaving you that's different than what I was talking about anyway I'll mute myself okay sorry I guess that wasn't exactly but yeah okay I'll just continue reading an earthly father will chastise his son because he loves him so will our Heavenly Father chastise us, so we will change our course and draw near unto him. We will not be offended when we feel these guilt feelings within our hearts, but we will be thankful and turn back unto the light. In D&T, chapter 95, verse 1, it says, Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you whom I love, and whom I love, I also chasten, chasten, sorry, that their sins may be forgiven, for with the chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation, and I have loved you. End quote from DNC 95 verse 1. We as sons and daughters of God can look at the withdrawal of the spirit, guilt feelings, as an act of love, as a call from Heavenly Father for us to return to his ways. Chastisement is necessary for each of us if we wish to come back into the presence of God. To bear it with gratitude is to see clearly the purpose of correction. And D&C 136 verse 31 says, My people must be tried in all things, that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them, even the glory of Zion. And he, has, will, or he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. DNC 136, verse 31. May we see clearly the purposes of God and see good in all things that come from above. May we remember that if one finds himself in darkness, he is guilty of transgression. May we come to hate darkness so much that we will be grateful for the chastisements of the Lord in our behalf and return unto him. And that's section three. Now we'll go on and continue with section four because I feel like we have plenty of time, so I'm going to keep going. Self-atonement. 
Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of this world. That is, as in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. As far as one's personal sins are concerned, Christ paid for all repented sins. DNC 19.16 If one chooses not to repent, then he must suffer, even as Christ suffered. DNC 19, verse 17. I would have somebody reading those um, and looking, looking those scriptures up so I can read it in its entirety. Um, but they're both handling other behaviors. So we'll just keep reading. Oh, thanks. Emmett's asking. DNC 19, verse 16. This is, or that is, one must atone for his own sins. In the 19th section of Doctrine and Covenants, Christ pleads with us to repent and allow his suffering to be a valid, to be valid on our behalf. He does not want us to suffer as he has suffered. In fact, if one suffers for his own sins, it will not bring the benefits and blessings one receives when he accepts the Savior's sacrifice. Did you find it? Yes. Go ahead. Okay, hold on. Sixteen? Uh, yep. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Uh, that Keep was going, seventeen. Okay. Yep. That was 17. Uh, Perfect. Thanks, Emmett. Yep. It just seemed like it would go together, so I read it. Mm-hmm. Evidently, many will have to pay for their own sins and suffer even as Christ suffered because they refuse to repent. And this self-atonement will bring some blessings. However, there is another form of self-atonement that produces no benefits for anyone but only darkness and misery. Many unwisely perform this self-atonement when they make a mistake or sin, or are rejected by others, or see their loved ones making mistakes. When these things happen, as this individual runs negative thoughts through his mind, he tells himself he is no good, worthless, a pain to everyone, and that he deserves what he is getting. He moves in and says, if you were a good person, you would not have all of these problems. Oh my goodness, I've had that same feeling today. Um, I'm going to go off on a tangent. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. So, I know. So today, so I I know that we've talked about it before, but uh, I love my job, and I am really good at what I do. But some days, no matter how much you have been to school and all the book works and everything, it does not prepare you for the things that happen. And if I, myself as a mom, as a woman, I feel like I have to do all of the things by myself and I feel like if I can't handle all of the problems that are thrown at me during the day, then I am somewhat less of a great teacher, <laughs> that I am not amazing because I couldn't do it all by myself. So while well, I had some random things going on um, with within the classroom of crying and um, throwing fits um, for various reasons, um, you know, that six-year-olds would throw fits um, because of, I suppose. 
and I diffuse them very well. I am used to this kind of um, rigor of the program that I use. We are used to, um, you know, helping kids to cope with feelings. We do a lot of social emotional awareness in our classroom. We love these children so much. They're the best part of my day. I love it. They're so much fun, my own kids included. <laughs> but these kids, during the day, we do have some very interesting, we'll just say that, behaviors. And with having a child vomit, even though we were told up and down that there is nothing wrong, he is absolutely fine, it's, it's going to be okay, they explained what the problem was, and we were like, okay, sounds great. And then having him vomit in the classroom and stop my whole lesson doing an impromptu recess time, that was, you know, throwing a little bit of a wrench in my plans. That was fine. We sidetracked. We came back in, finished doing our lesson. We had to toss part of it because we didn't have the time to finish. We had another really weird situation this morning. I don't even know how to explain this one, especially on a radio show, but we just had another really curious thing that I was in the classroom on my own because I do have an aide, but she um, was taking her break because she gets a break also. And while she was gone, I had another really curious behavior that I could not for the life of me figure out exactly what to do. And I had to go get help from my secretaries. And I feel bad. I feel bad that I couldn't just fix that problem while trying to do my lessons. And I, you know, the, the kids are great. I had one of my amazing readers get up and she helped continue the lesson. She was acting just like a teacher. It was so adorable. And I just love it. Even thinking about it now, it gave her the opportunity to step up and try to be, you know, helpful and a leader. She was so great. Um, and so we do all adapt in the classroom. They're, they do so well. I only had one student who um, got up out of character and was out of seat, not following the directions. But the rest of them did so well at that time. But I didn't see all of that at the time. Um, by the way, there's only 90 seconds left in the live stream. So if you want to call in, the number is 917-889-8827. I saw all of this other stuff taking place when I came back in. Like, these kids are amazing. I love working with them. Look how adaptable they are. That was great. So I saw a lot, a lot of positives out of this, this problem that arose randomly. But I can't help but at the end of the day think, man, I did not do a good, great thing. I'm not that great of a teacher. I could not fix this on my own. And I always feel like all of these problems, because I've talked about a few of them, there were several of them today, um, though, you know, some of them were a little bit more complex than others. Um, I thought, I needed all of this help today. Why can't I just do this on my own without needing, you know, a janitor to come in and help clean up? Why, why did I need the janitor's help? Why do I need the secretary's help? Why did I need a a classroom aid. Why can't I just do this all on my own? And I am realizing now after reading this, it says if you were a good person, you'd not have all these problems. That's exactly what I was thinking. And I was like, oh my goodness. And I apologized to everybody. I was like, I'm so sorry that I couldn't fix this one on my own. You know, I, oh, I'm sorry to inconvenience you. I'm trying to finish this lesson on comprehension and 
I can't do that and this at the same time. So I felt bad about it. But then this, and of course it's a lie. That's that's what this says. It's, you know, it says this, of course, is a lie, since we know that our adversaries come upon the good as well as the bad. And that comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 25 and, and 27. But the point is, if I stop and think about it for a minute, I am a really great teacher. I'm great at what I do. I love my job. I love the kids. Um, we look at, obviously, test scores, and and not just test scores, but looking at these kids from the beginning of the year to now and understanding all of the things that we have gone through together and helped each other with and grown and done all of the things for, you know, each other to help each other to grow. Um, and you can see the growth. You can see how well we've done. So uh, I shouldn't be looking at just this one part of the day or one part of the year and judging myself like, oh, I could do this so much, or if I couldn't do all of this all on my own, then I am not as good of a teacher as, you know, somebody who's in fifth grade doing all of fifth graders, you know. <sighs> it's just an unfair judgment. Anyways, so that was my huge rant. I'm going back <laughs> to the reading now. If anyone finds anything good about this person, he will deny it in his mind. It seems that this person wants to punish himself for making a mistake or failing in some facet of life. It is as if he was ordained by the heavens to inflict punishment upon his person mentally, emotionally, and physically. And as if one could get through this life without sinning or making a mistake. Emmett, could you please look up Romans chapter 3, verse 23? Mm-hmm. Romans 3.23. The sad part is that this type of behavior does not bring repentance or forgiveness, nor does it lead one back into spiritual light. In fact, it accomplishes the opposite. It leads one farther into darkness. Okay, I found it. Okay. It is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, that was long. It's that, I know, it's, it's that one, but the, the special one that everyone brings up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The more one does with self-atonement, the greater his suffering and the greater his darkness. God does not require this type of punishment in order for one to be forgiven. In Alma chapter 5, verse 32 and 33, it says, Yea, even woe unto all ye workers of iniquity. Repent, repent, for the Lord God hath spoken it. Behold, he sendeth an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them, and he saith, Repent, and I will receive you. End quote. That's Alma chapter 5, verse 32 through 33. The gift of repentance and forgiveness requires that one recognize his responsibility for the sin and prepare himself to meet the demands of justice. Alma 42, 29 through 30. Emmett? <laughs> Yes. The effects of sin may last for years as a person overcomes the mistake, but one needs hope, love, faith, and nearness to God and his son in order to overcome. A self-atonement takes one away from the Godhead and keeps him in spiritual darkness. We should take care never to put ourselves down or listen to the lies of Satan. These things are contrary to our spiritual worth and stop us from being forgiven of self and others. 
draw unto God through his son, Jesus Christ, repentance does not require one to do this kind of self-atonement ever. Go ahead, Emmett. Okay. Uh, Alma 42, 29 to 30. And now, my son, I desire that ye should let these things trouble you no more, and only let their sin or your sins trouble you. And that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. Or with that trouble which shall bring you down into repentance. O my son, I desire that ye should deny the justice of God no more. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God. But do you let the justice of God and his mercy and his long suffering have full sway in your heart and let it bring you down to dust in humanity or humility. Thank you. I remember a wife calling for an appointment, and it was evident that she was very upset. Arrangements were made immediately. In the interview, she said her husband was going to leave her for another woman. This couple had been active in the church for years. She broke down and cried. She could not accept that this was happening to her. I asked her if she had prayed about the situation with Heavenly Father. Yes, I have, she said. In fact, she had spent over two hours in prayer. I then asked her, what did he tell you? She said, he won't answer me. You see, the doors to heaven were closed because she knew that her husband would not consider leaving her if she were a good person, or so she thought. She did not like herself, which is what Satan had been telling her for the past several hours. She loved herself only when certain levels of performance were obtained. We spent an hour and a half talking about prayer and feelings of self-worth. Then we got on our knees and had a prayer. She saw the spiritual doors open as she came to feel good about herself. Then she felt the love of her Heavenly Father, and this became a very choice experience for her. She learned a great lesson, and her marriage is now happy and stable. The Lord helped her through the steps to overcome this problem. Of course, her receiving answers to her prayers had nothing to do with whether or not Heavenly Father liked her. He is always there to help us when we prepare ourselves to receive his help. <clears throat> okay, um, I just have a question for you, Mark. So we're on um, section 5, and it says, But I am not a good parent unless all my ch children turn out okay. That seems like a really great chapter. Um, and I am on page 150. This chapter doesn't end until page 172, 22 pages um, out. How long did you want this reading to go for? I don't. Anywhere you can end the, the reading in overdrive, just go ahead and end it. Okay, that was kind of my question. So this was a good place to end it. This is about self-feeling, self-worth, right? And yes. um, it goes into, you know, number five is the next one. And that one is only a couple pages. Each of these is only a, a couple pages. But it goes, you know, all the way up to um, number 12. And we are at five right now. And it's like two pages yeah. each. And then there's also another section, section five in the same chapter, and that's another page. Yeah. So we can continue on later. It kind of depends on how much I think. I don't always know if it's a good thing, but whatever. I just do. Nope. I'm like, oh, it's man. always good. Okay, good. <laughs> 
Well, I value your thoughts and opinions, and I think Thanks. that you add a perspective to the reading of the different things that we get into that I think is good. It's satisfying. So. Thanks. I'm trying to personalize it so that people understand that um, you, you can read a lot or go into a lot of podcasts and radio shows, I'm sure, of people who um, are trying to teach things or put per certain pamphlets or information out there. Um, but the difference between them and me is that I'm not trying to teach people because I am perfect. I'm trying to learn along with people so that I'm like, oh, man, I needed to hear this today, and I got to tell you, this is exactly what my life is like right now, and this is so pertaining to me. <laughs> so, so that they can understand Except that. For the cheating you know, husband. we go through it too. Except <laughs> well, not for the, the cheating, cheating husband part. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the cheating husband part. You know, I told Emmett earlier, and, and now I'm got to tell you that we can't talk over each other. Nobody can understand what is being said. So anyway, yeah, I, it's good. Um, I, there, all of this stuff is good. I, I recommend people, if they can get on eBay or Amazon, go look for this book and read it for yourself. Mark it up. Ponder over the messages that are being said. Uh, this is one of the most important books in my uh, understanding, you know, in, in understanding the truth of the restored gospel, um, Satan wants to accuse us all the time of all the bad things, you know, whether God sees him as bad or not. He'll accuse you of anything that he can accuse you of, just to pull you down and get you distracted from from being on the path and whatever, you know. And... Um, even when you've done wrong. So I have a friend in Las Vegas. He was instructed by God not to inject poisonous chemicals into his body. And I'm not going to say the word because I've already been flipping banned uh, on, on certain platforms for talking about what I'm talking about now. But he was specifically told not to do this thing. And he, he, you know, he was also told to warn people about this poisonous chemical that is being injected into the uh, millions, if not billions. And he gave in to peer pressure, and he did what God told him not to do. And he, uh, the spirit left him, hardcore. And Satan is just grabbing onto that mistake that he made and running amok in this man's life. And God is ready to forgive, but he, this man cannot let or cannot tell Satan to go pound sand and get over it. He's just suffering, and I think that it's unneeded. It's not needed. So. Um, and then one last thing um, before I go on the dip. Um, I was specifically told with my fiance before I married my wife not to go in the house uh, where some of my things were, where her parents lived. And I thought, oh, I'll just go in and grab it and come right back out. And what happened while I was in the house pissed her parents off so much because her mom was flipping Satan, demonic, whatever, demoniac, 
um, it uh, it ended uh, the the engagement. It flipping screwed my life up hardcore. Now everything, you know, like I am so glad I married Kim because the other individual that I was engaged to, I could see that there would be some issues, but I loved her. But it, I didn't listen and uh, had the consequences of it. Now I'm in the depths. I spend or $500 on a cell phone antenna, and I still got to deal with the depth. Oh, well, it's not as bad as it would be if I didn't have the antenna. But yeah. anyway, um, I didn't listen. I justified, oh, I, I'll just go in and grab uh, the box, and I'll, I'll be out, right? You know, I no big deal. And I didn't have any indication that this thing was going to happen. But the thing happened. And it resulted in uh, her family forbidding her to marry me. And uh, she was going to go behind her parents' back and marry me anyway, but they told her they'd never speak to her again if she did. So, uh, well, that was the end of that. And uh, it had me getting in my car, putting everything into storage and driving from Everett, or, well, Moses Lake, Washington. I was actually living in Everett, Washington at the time. But uh, driving from Moses Lake, Washington, down to Salt Lake, and then down to Vegas, and then to New Orleans, and then finally to St. Petersburg, Florida, where I had to heal from the consequences of not listening to the Spirit, warned me not to do a thing, and I justified it. I justified it, and I didn't listen, and I got to learn a valuable lesson. Same as Joseph and and, uh, Martin Harris did. God told them no, no, no. And then they did what, whatever, because Joseph kept kept bugging God about it. He said, fine, go ahead and do it, see what happens. And uh, I'm about to uh, offend everybody, say the whole thing, but you'll know what I'm saying. Basically, God was like, F around and find out. And Joseph and Martin... They found out. I found out because I didn't listen. And that individual in Las Vegas who listens to these programs, he found out because he didn't listen. And and we're we're an example of what you shouldn't do in that situation. God, God's word is the word. He His commandments are the commandments. You know, and we need to to listen to them, or we can learn a lesson, and hopefully they're valuable lessons. So we don't have to repeat our mistakes. Anyway, all right. Well, yeah, we're in 16 minutes into it right now. And uh, I know that there's no live stream listeners or anything, but um, it's Tuesday night. And tonight there is a Zoom call at doctrineofchrist.com or thedoctrineofchrist.com. So I'm going to listen to that. And then uh, we'll be back on tomorrow with the next chapter of pre-existence talking about the birth of the spirit. So it should be a good, pretty, pretty good chapter. I'll try to get it pre-recorded before six. Um, uh, although I have just been notified today that we need to start earlier because uh, the day, tri- the daytime drivers are going up to Lehigh, Utah to pick up a load to take to Blanding, Utah. 
and that is a full 11 or 12 hour day, you know, and they got to leave earlier in the morning than I'm used to having the truck back. So, which is fine because then I get to see my wife and kids for more than 10 minutes in the morning, which is what has been going on lately. So, uh, yeah, the last couple of days. Yeah, Kim, I, like I saw Kim today when she was walking out to the car. I gave her a kiss and I gave hugs and kisses to my three littlest. Yeah, and, uh, and then they took off. And then the next time I saw them, I was actually getting gun loaded and pre-tripped. And she stopped right before I pulled out of the yard. And uh, I gave them all hugs and kisses. And I said, love you. And that's all I get to see them today. So, it is what it is. Yep. The way it has to be, unfortunately. But, all right. All right. Well, uh, we'll be done with the program. I'm going to pull up the studio. And uh, thank you, everyone who does listen. And take care, everyone. God bless, hopefully. And goodbye. Emmett, do the music. Go ahead and mute everyone, too, Emmett. Thank you.